Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, yo, yo! Yow! What is going on? My name's Hartzell, and this right ship, it's your KC! Ciao, baby! What's the word, Kansas City? A happy Tuesday to the KC Morning Hoes. Tuesdays on your KC Morning Show. You know what we do? You know what we do. We take back America, reclaiming that radical history. You don't take my word for it, that's fine. How about Professor Emeritus from the University of Wisconsin Green Bay? How about his? Professor Harvey K. Every week, we take back America, and I promise we're going to wrap up FDR month. It's going to happen, but it won't be today. We have one final detour, and it makes sense, okay? Because this man at one point was President FDR's vice president. And this, one of my favorite speeches of all time, we've touched on it just a little bit, but today we break it down. The century of the common man from one Henry Wallace. I have been wanting to riff with Professor K about this speech for so long. I am excited for you to hear this. Rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do. Kansas City, I love you. Appreciate you, my comrades, in solidarity forever. It's a good day to be a Kansas Cityan, always. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> professor Harvey K., my brother. He is the professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. It's just us, y'all. I know the last few weeks we've had guests on guests, but you're stuck with us. Professor K., how are you, my friend? I'm okay, as I was telling you. Late last week, I was a little down. Deflated is a better way of putting it. Whether it was the shootings, the inadequacy of the Democratic Party, not inadequacy, in some ways, the downright crap of the Democratic Party. When you consider, let me make it clear what I'm thinking. When you consider not only what they did to Nina Turner in Ohio, they then went on with Nancy Pelosi taking the lead in the wake of the leak of the end of Roe v. Wade, in the wake of shootings in the wake of everything that is destroying this country in the near future, she had the audacity to sustain her support for Henry Cuellar down in Texas in his bid for re-election when his opponent, Cisneros, Jessica Cisneros, I believe, yep. decidedly a progressive, she's running against him. And astonishingly, Cuellar, 
who opposes Roe, okay, opposes the woman's right to choose, who's in the pocket of the fossil fuel companies, who gets an A grade. Imagine that, an A grade from the NRA and Nancy Pelosi, not only endorsed him, apparently she did robo calling for him, you know, where she recorded a thing. Tell me, what kind of example is that? I mean, she has no right to be the leader of the Democratic Party. I, I, I just don't. I don't get it. And, and here's the thing that crushes me about all this is that some folks were saying that, oh, well, you know, you can't expect that Pelosi's robocalls, Clyburn's robocalls, that didn't push anybody over the line. This race was decided by a handful of votes. If right. Pelosi can't pull a handful of votes, then she shouldn't be speaker to begin with. Yeah, ex- thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Look, a woman's voice of her stature, tell me that's not going to influence people. I mean, anyhow, all of that was driving me down, 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 down. And then I'm sure listeners will recall when we had Alan on and we talked about the 21st century economic bill of rights. And we know there's tremendous support for the idea amongst the American citizenry. But really significant is this past weekend, the Massachusetts Democratic Party. We should have some breaking news. Breaking news, Harvey K. Yes, there you go. Massachusetts Democratic Party were in convention and it was both in person and by way of Zoom. And they voted to endorse, embrace the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights as Alan and I had laid it out. And I can tell you, all reports, and I've got reports from both the state senator in Massachusetts, from somebody who was on the floor and voted. I mean, 97% voted in favor of embracing the Economic Bill of Rights. That is historic. And if we handle this right, and this is one of the first places where the message is going out, maybe we can get other Democratic parties. I'm not saying we have to get it all enacted in the near future, because hell, first, we got to get the Democratic parties to wake up and embrace them as the Dems in Massachusetts did. Lifted my spirits. And so I'm still in a good mood, knowing you and I were going to be talking this evening in favor of our Tuesday Take Back America release. Man, it's great. Are the chiefs practicing already? We're practicing. In fact, Harvey, I've been down there covering some of the training. Also, I think about this. We kicked this whole Taking Back America series off talking football last summer. It's been over a year now, Professor K, that we've been doing this. Did we miss our anniversary? What are we doing? Shame on us. Shame (laughs) on us. You know what we should have done is I should have come down to Kansas City. We should have done a live show for the anniversary. We'll just double down for year two. That's what that means. We're going to blow it out in year two. I like that. I like that very much. So anyhow, here we are, 13 months, 14 months since we began. And the funniest thing is we had planned on doing, you know, no more than two or three weeks for any (laughs) one figure and their work. You and I seem to refuse to give up on the FDR. When did we begin FDR? I can't FDR started, Harvey, during my birthday month, and my birthday was in October. My birthday, too, was in October. So that means, let's see, November, December, January, February, March, April, May. Soon we'll deliver the baby, I'm sure. (laughs) I mean, we've also had some guests on, but that's no excuse, really. You know what? Maybe there was no excuse for us to ever think that we could cover FDR in one month. What were we thinking? Early on, you told me you can't wait to get to FDR. I do remember that. (laughs) And by the way, people probably forget a lot of what we do, so we can go do Thomas Paine next week. (laughs) By the way, in case people are wondering about upcoming weeks, this is a bit premature for the evening, but we are probably going to have our friend John Shelton, labor historian, back on with us, perhaps to take up A. Philip Randolph in the near future. That's a definite. Well, last week or a week before, we decided, yeah, with good reason, that before we really do finish the FDR speeches, and we have one more to, to deal with, which actually he never got to deliver. He 
passed away before he could deliver it. In fact, he passed away, I think, a day before he was supposed to deliver it. We decided it might be good to go back to a speech a bit earlier in the war, 1942, that both Hartzell and I agree is, well, it was a major event, the delivery of the speech. Vice President Henry Wallace's speech that came to be called the Century of the Common Man, which was delivered on May 8th in 1942. What anniversary is 80 years? What's after platinum? Do you think I know that kind of stuff? <laughs> Henry Wallace was born in 1888 in Iowa. And what's interesting is he grew up a young Republican. His father was a prominent figure in the Republican Party. In fact, his father served in two presidential cabinets, both of them Republican, in the cabinet of Warren G. Harding, and the other was Calvin Coolidge. So that was in the 20s. Can you imagine father and son were secretary of agriculture, the father in the 20s, the son in the 1930s. But I'll get to that. They were very active in agronomy. I think the younger Wallace himself actually developed a, an important corn seed. They were editors of a significant farm newspaper. It might have been a magazine or a newspaper. The point is they were very much Iowans. However, 1928, Henry Wallace, the younger of the Wallaces, he actually declared himself a Democrat and backed Al Smith in that campaign of 28. Well, in 1932, FDR wins election. His cabinet, which comes into play March of 1933, because he was inaugurated in March. That was the last time anyone was inaugurated in March. Very remarkable and extraordinary group of people in the cabinet. Frances Perkins was Secretary of Labor, the first woman ever to hold a cabinet position, and of all things, Secretary of Labor. Harold Ickes from Chicago, who was the Secretary of the Interior. His story is interesting because he was a progressive Republican from Chicago, who was also president of the Chicago chapter of the NAACP for a period of time and had an extraordinary set of ties to Native American reservations throughout the Midwest and the West, which came into play importantly during the New Deal years when he made it a point of developing what was called the Indian New Deal, that they would have far better treatment than they had had under previous administrations. Wallace is appointed Secretary of Agriculture. And during the 30s, agriculture was very important to FDR. There was enacted the Agricultural Adjustment Administration. There was the initiative called the Rural Electrification Agency, which was to set up cooperatives that would provide electricity to farmsteads all across the country. Keep in mind that farms did not have electricity, the vast majority, and the private utility companies did not want to run power lines in the less elite rural areas because they knew that the farmers couldn't afford to pay the charges they wanted to charge. So what FDR and Henry Wallace did is they established the Rural Electrification Agency and they set up cooperatives in the South and Midwest, maybe out to the West. And nearly a million farmsteads for the first time ever were hooked up with electrical power. And by the way, it isn't just the fact that you could turn on a light and what a pleasure to do so in the middle of the night. But it's also the case that if you didn't have electrical power, it meant that you were dependent on lanterns. If you know anything about rural areas, lanterns were a primary cause of uh, barn fires. I remember when I first came to Wisconsin back in the late 70s, it seemed like at least once a week, there was a story of a barn fire somewhere in the area and they already had electricity. Of course, you know, you've got all that hay in a barn. It's a tinderbox. So he was a remarkable secretary of agriculture. There were some downsides. Most of the work that the Department of Agriculture was doing in those years was really focused on, because he came out of the Midwest, kind of Midwestern family farm and trying to empower them. And unfortunately, that it meant that 
Southern sharecroppers, they were left out of the New Deal agricultural policies in the early years, not only African-American sharecroppers, also whites, but it exacerbated the racial oppression during those years. I mean, the pictures of people who were homeless along the sides of the rows and creating Hoovervilles, as they were called, were black and white. But it is the case that Southern sharecroppers characteristically were black. My great-grandmother was a sharecropper. In, in Missouri or in deeper south? In Arkansas. Rural Arkansas, even mid-70s, when I first went there, I was possibly going to teach at an Arkansas university. It was pretty pathetic, the standard of living. I remember being rather surprised. I'm amazed. Okay. Get out of there. Get out of Dixie. So Henry Wallace is a very progressive figure in FDR's administration, really pursuing the needs of you know American farmers who needed support, who needed electricity. I mean, there were mistakes made, but the fact was that he became a renowned figure as a consequence of his work as Secretary of Agriculture. And then in 1940, when FDR decided he was going to run for a third term as president, he had basically decided he was going to take on a new vice president. Various explanations are made. First of all, Wallace had become known as the evangelist of the New Deal in some ways. He had a really strong Christian streak Wallace. In fact, he had a spiritual advisor that brought some ill fame to him. Too many people who didn't care for him talked about him as if he was a flake because he had a spiritual advisor. I believe it was not an astrologer. I believe it was probably a Christian spiritualist, but nevertheless, that did come back to haunt him along the way. The important point is he came from Iowa and FDR wanted to sew up the Midwest all the more. He wanted to make sure farmers continued to trust him. Keep in mind that they had introduced farm subsidies in the 30s in order to keep farmers on the land and to help them improve agricultural practices. And Wallace was eager to, you know, to do what he could using the powers of the federal government to bring change to the land and the lives of farmers. So FDR brought him onto the ticket as his vice president, and he was an outstanding vice president, keeping in mind that he's going to be the wartime vice president. He was an avid speaker, very popular figure. He also did some traveling overseas to enhance America's position among the allied nations and with looking over the horizon to what the United States might do after the war. So now let's turn to the question of the century of the common man speech. In 1941, the magazine magnate, Henry Luce, who was himself the child, I believe, of Christian missionaries who had served in China, he decided it was time to challenge the American public and the American political class to, to ask themselves, what will America become in light of the war and the inevitable post-war years? And Luce wrote an article for his magazine that said, this is the American century. This will be the American century after the war. Folks can't see it, but I, I have an original copy of it here that I read some time ago. I had to know about this for my book on the fight for the four freedoms, FDR and the four freedoms book. A lot of it actually at first you read it and say, well, this makes sense. Americans have to come to grips with the fact that they have become the most powerful nation on earth, that Americans have a responsibility to wield that power effectively and smartly. The only thing is that he articulates it in a way that implies that although the United States should not necessarily dictate the post-war world and the lives of people in other countries, it should essentially dominate it. It will be the hegemonic power, and it should not fail to do so in terms of its own interests at the same time. Essentially, what Luce became known as, as the guy who was promoting, if you like, a kind of American imperial vision. And he was not a fan of FDR, Henry Luce, although in the book, he 
talks about the imperative of supporting FDR as the U.S. might be entering the war. But it's a very mixed kind of message regarding the Democrats and FDR. Well, in May of 1942, the United States has been in the war for, well, six months. December 7th, now it's on May 8th, 1942, Henry Wallace, as I said, champion of the New Deal, a devoted vice president. I don't know if there was any more devoted vice president than Wallace was to Roosevelt. He gave a speech. I think it was called a a free world victory speech, but it became known as the century of the common man speech. In this speech, which we're going to turn to now, he, in essence, responds to Luce's Americanism. Americanism is in itself not the bad part. It's that the Americanism was going to become this kind of imperial Americanism. So Wallace offers a counter to the idea of the American century, especially because we're in a war with allies and we're trying literally not just hold on to this alliance in the face of fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and Japan. But we're also trying to cultivate a world in which, as FDR put it, the allied nations would be seen as the United Nations. And eventually FDR's vision of a United Nations could be created at 45 and thereafter. Wallace gives this speech, which, by the way, is not only a counter to uh, Henry Luce's article, it draws on another thing that I want to point out. And a lot of people don't know this or they fail to refer to it. One of my favorites, in fact, my favorite journalist, editor, and intellectual of this period of the New Deal years and World War II, some extent well into the 40s, into the 50s, perhaps, was a man named Max Lerner. And Max Lerner had responded originally to Henry Luce's idea of the American century, challenging Luce, saying that Luce makes some good points, but the time has come to understand that we need to create the people's century. He offers the first shot against Luce's speech. It really does drive home a small d democratic argument. And I have little doubt that Wallace knew this stuff, that he probably knew Max Lerner himself. And the term people's century appears in Henry Wallace's speech. I also want to say something else about this speech I've told to you, uh, Hartzell, and that is we all know the great composer Aaron Copeland for any number of works. And I can tell you that my favorite American composer is Aaron Copland. I don't think anyone captures, if if one could do it in music, captures the American spirit as effectively as does Copland. And during the war, Copland received some major commissions that were viewed in part as sort of musical contributions to the war effort. The most famous at the outset of the war was his pieces, The Lincoln Portrait. Every listener here should definitely go listen. He turned to write another composition, another commission he had, which at first he was planning on calling the Fanfare for the Four Freedoms, based on FDR's own speech, State of the Union speech of January 41, in which FDR proposes a vision for America and the world based on the idea of freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. However, after Wallace gave this speech. People heard it. I'm pretty sure it was probably on radio and and people heard it. In fact, it's available on YouTube after we do this. If you don't like the way Hartzell and I presented, go watch it on YouTube. I'm sure Hartzell will have it there as a link somewhere. You know, I will. Copeland so loved Henry Wallace's speech that instead of titling the composition Fanfare for the Four Freedoms, Copeland, who, by the way, was associated with the Communist Party during those years, was definitely a radical. He decided he's going to title his composition Fanfare for the Common Man. And when you hear it, you'll recognize it immediately. 
Yo, my name's Hart, so we're gonna take a quick break. More from myself and Professor Harvey K as we take back America. But first, a fanfare for the common man. Shikasi Morning Show. So this was a very important speech in its day. It's a speech that has tended to be forgotten, except by you know intellectuals and progressives and so on. But it, it is a powerful speech. I will say that there are some mistakes that he makes in the speech as a rhetorical device or as a reference. And I'm going to point one of them out. Perhaps sounds silly to you as I do point it out, but Hartzell and I agreed it's probably the best way to point it out. I won't tell you yet until we get to it, okay? I'm going to read a paragraph that we've selected, then Hartzell will do a paragraph and we'll work our way through. We might pause along the way for a sidebar comment. So these are now Henry Wallace's words. This is a fight between a slave world and a free world. Just as in the United States in 1862, we could not remain 
half slave and half free, and those, as you know, are Lincoln's words. So in 1942, the world must make its decision for a complete victory, one way or the other. As we begin the final stages of this fight to the death between the free world and the slave world, it is worthwhile to refresh our minds about the march of freedom for the common man. The idea of freedom, the freedom that we in the United States know and love so well, is derived from the Bible with its extraordinary emphasis on the dignity of the individual. Democracy is the only true political expression of Christianity. Okay, I just want to make one sidebar comment. This is only 1942. The United States is getting the shit kicked out of it around the world. The British are equally getting the shit kicked out of them. I mean, this is not anywhere near the final stages of the fight, as he says. And I said to Hartzell earlier, that's a premature articulation. <laughs> and I'm only repeating it on his insistence. The prophets of the Old Testament were the first to preach of social justice, but that which was sensed by the prophets many centuries before Christ was not given complete and powerful political expression until our nation was formed as a federal union a century and a half ago. Even then, the march of the common people had just begun. Most of them did not yet know how to read and write. There were no public schools to which all children could go. Men and women cannot be really free until they have plenty to eat and time and ability to read and think and talk things over. Down the years, the people of the United States have moved steadily forward in this practice of democracy. Through universal education, they now can read and write and form opinions of their own. They have learned, and are still learning, the art of production, that is, how to make a living. They have learned, and are still learning, the art of self-government. Yeah, and then we're going to skip a little bit. There's a whole set of discussions about what's going on in the world and the progress that has been made. But let's pick it up where the common people come back into play as agents of history. These are now Wallace's words. Everywhere, the common people are on the march. When the freedom-loving people march, when the farmers have an opportunity to buy land at reasonable prices and sell the products of their land through their own organizations, when workers have the opportunity to form unions and bargain through them collectively, and when the children of all the people have an opportunity to attend schools which teach them that truth of the real world, when these opportunities are open to everyone, then the world moves straight ahead. He then goes on to speak of the threat to this march of the people, and that is the rise of demagogues and dictators. He's introducing the demagoguery that took place in Germany that led, of course, to the rise of Nazism. He then goes on to a line, and I'm going to read the line that'll introduce Hartzell's paragraph. He's talking about a particular demagogue or demagogues. As long as the demagogue's spell holds, he defies God himself, and Satan is turned loose on the world. Through the leaders of the Nazi revolution, Satan now is trying to lead the common man of the world back into slavery and darkness. For the stark truth is that the violence preached by the Nazis is the devil's own religion of darkness. So also is the doctrine that one race or one class is by heredity superior, and that all other races or classes are supposed to be slaves. The search for freedom, the march of freedom of the past 150 years has been a long, drawn-out people's revolution. In this great revolution of the people, there have been the American Revolution of 1775, the French Revolution of 1792, the Latin American revolutions of the Bolivarian era, 
the German Revolution of 1848 and the Russian Revolution of 1917. Each spoke for the common man in terms of blood on the battlefield. Some went to excess, but the significant thing is that the people groped their way to the light. Most of them learned to think and worked together. The people, in their millennial and revolutionary march toward manifesting here on earth the dignity that is in every human soul, hold as their credo the four freedoms, enunciated by President Roosevelt in his message to Congress on January 6, 1941. These four freedoms are the very core of the revolution for which the United Nations have taken their stand. We who live in the United States may think that there is nothing very revolutionary about freedom of religion, freedom of expression, and freedom from the fear of secret police. But when we begin to think about the significance of freedom from want for the average man, then we know that the revolution of the past 150 years has not been completed either here in the United States or in any other nation in the world. We know that this revolution cannot stop until freedom from want has actually been attained. It's at this point that Wallace turns back specifically to the war effort. He says, it is my belief that every freedom, every right, every privilege has its price, its corresponding duty without which it cannot be enjoyed. The four duties of the people's revolution, as I see them, as of this day are these. One, the duty to produce to the limit. Two, the duty to transport as rapidly as possible to the line of battle. Three, the duty to fight with all that is in us. And four, the duty to build a peace, just, charitable, and enduring. The fourth duty is that which inspires the other three. He goes on to speak specifically of the American century that Henry Luce articulated. He says, some have spoken of the American century. I say that the century on which we are entering, the century which will come into being after this war, can be and must be the century of the common man. And we're skipping over a number of paragraphs because the speech is a bit longer than our time on the show tonight. He's warning against fifth columnists and subversives. The main thing to remember before we finish is that this speech is delivered when the United States is just beginning to get its act together as a member of the Allied Nations. And the Allied Nations could not have survived if we did not. We had the industry, we had the agriculture that could sustain a major war effort on two fronts. This is important. 1942 was the worst year of the war. It was not unlike the beginning year of the Civil War when we didn't know whether or not the Union would prevail. We lost the Philippines. We had yet to enter into war in the Atlantic. The German U-boats were still sinking a lot of shipping. The British, I believe it was during the stretch, were being thrown out of Southeast Asia by the Japanese. One colonialism was replacing the other, you might say, in that sense. Well, as I said before, as we've said, Henry Wallace is very much a political speaker with a strong religious fervor in his words. And listen to these last paragraphs that Hartzell will read. No compromise with Satan is possible. We shall not rest until all the victims under the Nazi and Japanese joke are freed. We shall fight for a complete peace as well as a complete victory. The people's revolution is on the march, and the devil and all his angels cannot prevail against it. They cannot prevail, for on the side of the people is the Lord. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary. 
They shall walk and not be faint. Strong in the strength of the Lord, we who fight in the people's cause will never stop until that cause is won. May 8th, 1942. And just so people know, the Bible verse that you just read is from Isaiah. Now, Henry Wallace was a fantastic vice president. He had been an outstanding secretary of agriculture. He was a fantastic vice president. But in 1944, when FDR was beginning his campaign for a fourth term as president, it was kind of known that he was not in the kind of shape that he should be. Now, it was not known how serious his health condition was. But people, the corporate Dems, we would call them today, the the conservative Dems in the party, that would be the Southern Dems and others, knew that the war would be over within a year or at least a few. In Europe, within a year or two, it might go on a bit longer in Japan, but they knew the United States and its allies could prevail. And they started to wonder what a post-war America might be like. And they feared the possibility that Henry Wallace would be in line for the presidency. And they feared it because he was that kind of progressive. He was not a socialist, but he was a decidedly small D Democrat and progressive. And he was also very, very strongly in favor of civil rights, regulating business, continuing to empower workers, extending social security to include healthcare. He was, as was FDR by this time, increasingly social democratic. So party leaders, party bosses, too many of them perhaps, came to FDR and said, you should not have Wallace on your ticket in 44. But FDR wanted Wallace on his ticket and they pressured him and pressured him. And he finally got to the point of saying, let's leave it up to the convention this summer. And I can tell you that the bosses manage the convention effectively enough that Wallace, who might well have won at the convention, and FDR would have had his vice president. They had managed the convention so effectively or badly for those of us who are progressives that Wallace was no longer on the ticket. Now, FDR would not give up his relationship with Wallace. And in the new presidential administration that began in 45, he appointed Henry Wallace Secretary of Commerce, but it was Harry Truman. This is the Kansas City podcast became vice president. Now, I can tell you that Wallace was flawed. Truman was flawed. Truman had strengths that Wallace did not. Wallace had instincts that Truman did not. So I'm not going to get in the middle of the debate. The left loves to berate Truman because he, for a start, the Truman presidency began really a mess. He didn't know how to serve as president. He just wasn't prepared. And as he wasn't prepared, and it turned out that in 46, the Republicans won Congress and thus were able to pass the insidious, subversive anti-labor law called Taft-Hartley, which really weakened labor's ability to organize in the South, and it opened the door to states becoming what became known as right-to-work states. Henry Wallace was not happy at all about these kinds of things, and he stayed on in the Truman administration for a period of time, but it got to the point where it was just impossible, and the two of them knew that it just wouldn't work. He's out. He leaves the administration. The thing about Wallace is he's determined not to leave politics, and he's eager to pick up the pieces of the progressive movement that FDR had launched in all those years of the New Deal and into the war years. And he begins really a campaign for president in 1948. And he does so under the, if you like, under the title of the Progressive Party, which of course, once upon a time had been a party, but now it's been resurrected with Wallace. The problem is that it was never likely to win. In my own opinion, I've, I've written about this 
when I reviewed John Nichols' book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, is that Wallace should not have left the party. Wallace should have stayed in and fought on. Anyhow, two forces left the Democratic Party during the 48 presidential election. The Southern white supremacists created the state's rights party under Strom Thurmond. The progressives to the left left the Democratic Party in favor of the progressive party. The state's rights party did better because of its hold on the South than the progressive party under Wallace did. He took a beating. It became a total embarrassment for progressives, you might say. And people would say, no, it wasn't. But it really was the case that many of the the strongest organizers and activists in the progressive party were communists, which didn't help at all in light of the exploding Cold War of the day. And Wallace is beaten and he basically becomes marginal to political and public life in America. But it is the case, people, especially on the left, myself included, have always asked the question, what if the convention, or what if Roosevelt had said, screw you to the bosses? Well, he knew that he needed a certain solidarity in the party because a fourth term was really outrageous. The third term was unprecedented. The fourth term was outrageous. In the end, so happens that he won more than 400 electoral college votes. I mean, the popular vote remained decidedly in his favor, though not necessarily as strong as it had been in previous elections, but he overwhelmingly won in the Electoral College. It was a major victory. And let's not forget, should have been a major victory for the Economic Bill of Rights proposal that he made. That unfortunately didn't happen. The GI Bill of Rights did happen. So anyhow, the question is always asked, well, what would have happened if, if Wallace were president? You know, history would have been different, but would Wallace have succeeded? Would he have been able to govern effectively and pursue an Economic Bill of Rights and the kinds of policies and programs that that implied. And I don't think I could confidently say yes, because return to peacetime America is a very hard thing to manage. When you've had a total mobilization of 16 million young Americans, not all of whom came back from the war, but 15 million young Americans who would have been released from uniform duties at the end of the war, and there was a shortage of housing, They had no idea if the job would be available. So many of these young people were now going to be provided the GI Bill of Rights. Colleges were going to be overwhelmed. Workers were desperately eager to get wage increases, which they had been denied during the war because of necessary wage and price controls. The capitalists were eager to raise their prices, basically to gouge consumers. And it's hard to know if Wallace could have managed that or not any better than Truman did. The one thing for sure is it's not likely Wallace would have imposed the loyalty oaths on federal employees, which then sort of intensified the sense of a Cold War. So it's hard to know. And I I can't possibly tell you what difference it would have made. Truman, of course, had to make the final decision on dropping the atomic bomb. But I'm not so sure Wallace wouldn't have, frankly. I mean, the fear was that the war would go on and on and on. Anyhow, I'm not going to get tied up on that. Henry Wallace was an extraordinary figure who, who was an outstanding cabinet member and a truly outstanding vice president during World War II. And we can fantasize what might have been, but we just don't know what might have been. Well, I think most importantly, you know, especially as we think about how we even started this entire segment, you and I, over a year ago now, you know, we did it as a way to be on the lookout for folks like Josh Hawley co-oping a populist message. I saw this just a few weeks ago. Tucker Carlson is quoting the common man speech. Oh my God. And on that, just let me say, so I don't forget that The one thing I think we can depend on is Wallace would have really pressured the British, the French, the Dutch, and the others to 
end colonialism. It would not have been as long and drawn out a, a process. Wallace was more committed to the end of colonialism. Truman, encouraged by A. Philip Randolph, a black civil rights and labor leader, did move on civil rights matters. Wallace would have been probably all the more aggressive. When he ran in 48, he was heroic in his campaign of 48. He went to the South to try to take down intellectually and rhetorically segregation. I mean, seriously, he was brave. He went right into the heart of the South to speak to integrated crowds and basically to call for an end to segregation. By the end of World War II, FDR was moving more and more towards that, but had yet, he had yet to really ever call for an end to segregation. Well, I just think it's so important as we continue to go back and check out our radical playbook. You know, not only is it helpful for us as we make this new, more perfect union, it's there. And it's so helpful when you have something that's already there that you can use to inspire. But also, it's just so easily co-opted by bad faith actors. And I hope that that is one of the reasons why our folks continue to check us out every week, because we want to reclaim that radical progressive history. And we want to Propel it forward. Don't fall for the okie doke as we get ready for football season. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine we should actually next week, so people are prepared, do that final never delivered FDR speech. We can talk reflectively if we'd like about FDR, Henry Wallace, whatever, you know. And then after that, we can still include elements from those years. And I think the primary figure we would want to consider in those terms, whose life, political life from the 20s and 30s all the way through to the 1960s, is a Philip Randolph. We want to deal with some of his stuff. And that's when we'll bring John Shelton on to join us. And there are others. And I I think we ought to go back to a let's do a night of poetry again soon, even if we've touched on that stuff already. Okay, from these years, we've just covered a nice pretty bow on FDR next week. And then we hit him with some poetry after that. Okay, and then my thinking is, and I'll leave this to you, when we get towards July 4th, okay, we can either go back to the episode where we did July 4th, or we can do a whole new reading of the declaration. Do you know how much life has happened since we last did our July 4th episode? Yeah, we have to do another one, Harvey. Oh, yeah. That's good. That is very good. We promise we will not read the Articles of Confederation. Or will we? (laughs) (laughs) Professor Harvey K., where can these folks find you on the internet? It's only at Twitter. Harvey J.K. H-A-R-V-E-Y. J-K-A-Y-E. And you, where can they find you? They can find me at Hartzell965. Then get this show, the KC Morning Show, at KC Morning Show. I will say this, my brother. It's so good to chat with you because I think we both, we were down pretty bad the last few weeks. But man, to see you and to get that great breaking news out of Massachusetts. (laughs) We were trying to think of a good title for this thing. I'm calling it a hot radical summer. You said patriot season. Either way, conditions are ideal, Professor K. You bet. Absolutely. And I also want to say, I enjoy you as much as you enjoy me. So this is really a comradeship. Believe me. Believe me. My brother. I love you, my friend. In solidarity as always. Absolutely. Until next time. Early in the morning, factory whistle blows, then rises from bed and puts on his clothes, then takes his lunch, walks out in the morning. Mansions of pain See my daddy walking Through them factory gates In the rain Factory takes his ear Factory gives him life Though working 
Somebody's gonna